Colossians chapter 1 is our passage. We're going to read it together in just a minute. There are notes in your bulletin. You can track along with the message this morning. This is week four in the book of Colossians. If you've been here the last several weeks, you know the dominant theme of this book is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And we've sang about that this morning. We've sang about the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what Colossians is about. Colossians is a book, a short letter, and it's all about the supremacy of Christ. And last week, in the passage we studied, verse 15 to 20, we looked at verse 18. We looked at the last word in verse 18. In the ESV, it's the word preeminent. In the NIV, it's the word that he might be supreme. Some translations, I told you I wasn't crazy about this uh, translation, but some translations say that he's first place All of those translations are driving at the same idea that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is absolutely supreme. He is preeminent. He is the number one first place King and Lord over everything. And what we talked about last week in 15 to 20, verse 15 to 20 in chapter 1, which was a hymn ties directly into our passage this morning. In fact, the hymn that you find in Colossians 1, 15 to 20 is then applied in our passage this morning, Colossians 1, 21 to 23. And basically the idea is this. The hymn that we studied last week says Jesus Christ is the Lord of creation and Jesus Christ is the Lord of redemption. Our passage this morning, verse 21, 22 to 23, a very short passage says, here's why that is good news for you. Here's why it's gospel news for you that Jesus Christ is the Lord of creation and in particular the Lord of redemption. It is very, very good gospel news. Now, just by way of cross-reference, I've mentioned this already, Ephesians chapter 2, we read verse 1 to 10, but really verse 1 to 22 is a parallel passage to this short little passage that we're studying this morning in the book of Colossians. So if you were here recently on Wednesday nights, we just went through a long study of the Bible. And we talked about the doctrine of the Bible and hermeneutics. How do you interpret the Bible? And if you were here for that study on Wednesday nights, you remember one of the important principles of Bible interpretation is something called the analogy of faith. And what the analogy of faith means, what it stands for is we use the Bible to interpret the Bible. When we read something in the Bible that maybe we're not quite sure about or we don't understand fully or even that we think we do understand, we always want to look to other Bible passages that say the same thing or similar things or talking about the same story or the same people to help us understand what a particular passage is saying. And I just mentioned that to remind you, when you look at a book like Colossians and you read a passage like 21, 22, and 23, it's helpful to lay it beside what Paul says elsewhere. Elsewhere, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 22. And a passage we'll read in just a moment. You could also look at 2 Corinthians 5 as a parallel passage to the one that we're studying this morning. Here's the big idea of Colossians 1, 21 to 23. It's that believers have been reconciled to God. Believers have been reconciled to God. In the original language, verse 21, 22, and 23 is a single sentence. And it's sometimes hard to see this in English translations, but in the original language, there is only one verb 
in those verses, and it is the verb reconciled. So the big idea, the dominant driving theme of this sentence, this passage, is that believers have been reconciled to God. That idea of being reconciled or reconciliation is a word picture that helps us understand salvation. And there's several of these in the New Testament. All of them are important in their own right. You could talk about justification. The word justification is a legal term that describes God declaring us righteous as if we were in a court of law. We are guilty, but when we are justified in justification, God declares that we are righteous. We could talk about redemption. We've talked about redemption recently in Colossians 1 verse 14. It's a term that describes ownership or a purchase being made. Jesus Christ in his death on the cross redeemed us. That means he's purchased us. That means we belong to him. Also in verse 14, you could talk about forgiveness. It's literally an accounting term or a bookkeeping term, meaning that a debt has been erased. A debt has been forgiven. We could talk about adoption. It's a family word, meaning that we were orphans. We were estranged from God, and he welcomed us into his family. This morning, we're talking about this word picture of reconciliation. And the basic idea of reconciliation is that left to ourselves, we are God's enemies. We're separated from him. We are not his friend. But God has gone to the greatest lengths in his grace and his mercy to reconcile us to himself. He has done everything that needs to be done for us to be brought back into a right, friendly, loving relationship with him. I want to start this morning by reading the passage and then telling you a story from the Bible. So look with me at Colossians chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 21. Scripture says this, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister." That's the word of God. Let me tell you a story from the Bible. For some of you, this will be a familiar story. For others of you, it may not be quite so familiar. I want to tell you a, a story about an Old Testament character named Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth's story is tied up with David. David and Mephibosheth sort of go together. So Mephibosheth was the son, one of the sons of David's friend, Jonathan. That means he was the grandson of King Saul. He was of a kingly lineage. To make a long story short, his father and his grandfather were killed on a single day in the same battle. And news of the death of his father and his grandfather came back to where Mephibosheth and the rest of the family were at. Mephibosheth was five years old when this happened. Now in the ancient world, when a king died, there was often great risk for his family. Because this transition of one king to another was a time of, of opportunity for another line to swoop in and maybe take the throne. And so many times, we've talked about this on Wednesday nights recently as Corey and I have preached through some of the kings of Israel and Judah. Many times, entire families were wiped out when a king 
died. And so all of the people who were with Mephibosheth and Jonathan's family and Saul's family, they panicked when they heard that Saul and Jonathan had been killed. And they said, we have got to run and we've got to run quickly. So they gathered up what they could grab and they took off. Mephibosheth was five years old. A nurse picked him up, was running out of the city, tripped, stumbled, dropped him, and his legs were broken as a five-year-old child. For the rest of his life, he was crippled. He never recovered from that injury. He was taken to a place called Lodabar. Lodabar. Lodabar literally means a desolate wasteland. So this is going to be hard for those of you who live in Odessa. But I want you to picture a place that has no water, no trees, lots of dirt and sand, The climate is not particularly favorable to growing anything. And every time you look around, you just sort of feel, "Eh." I know it's hard, but imagine a place like that. That's Lodabar. It's a desolate place. And Mephibosheth is literally taken there to hide out. So that David, David wouldn't have done this. He had opportunities to kill Saul. He didn't kill Saul. But the fear was that David would wipe out Saul's line in an attempt to take the throne. So Mephibosheth is taken away and he hides out in Lodabar. He's hoping, they are hoping, it's the last place that anyone will ever look. Years go by. Mephibosheth grows up into a grown-up. He gets married. He has a family. And then one day, somebody comes knocking on his door. They're looking for somebody whose birth name wasn't Mephibosheth, but was Mary Baal. That was Mephibosheth's birth name, Mary Baal. And Mephibosheth is actually a nickname. It's sort of what we remember him as, but Mephibosheth is a nickname, and Mephibosheth means bitter dishonor. Bitter dishonor. So you understand what life was like for Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth's life, living in Lodabar, a desolate wasteland, He's living a life of bitter dishonor, hiding out so that nobody kills him. His father and his grandfather have been killed, and he's just trying to salvage some kind of life. One day, there's a knock on the door, and the knock is from a group of men who work for King David. David, at this point, has been firmly established as king over Israel, and he has an idea. He says, are there any descendants of Saul still living And everyone thinks he's going to say so that we can wipe them out. And what David says, are there any descendants of Saul still living that I can show kindness to them? Because Jonathan was a good friend to me. And Saul, he didn't do me right, but Jonathan was a good man. And I would like to show kindness to their family if possible. And somebody says, well, there is a son of Jonathan. Rumor has it he's hiding out in Lodabar. So David sends his men and they knock on the door. And you can imagine what Mephibosheth thinks when they knock on the door. He thinks, well, it was a good run. Not so great living in Lodabar, but you know, I got married and I had kids, but now I'm being summoned to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. But David's intention wasn't to put him to death. David's intention was to show him kindness. And David actually welcomes Mephibosheth essentially into his family. He restores the family land and the family inheritance to Mephibosheth. And he reconciles with this man who had been separated and far off. It's a beautiful Old Testament picture of reconciliation. And it's a picture of what God has done for us 
in sending Jesus. The Bible says that left to ourselves, we are far from God and we need to be reconciled. And that's where I want us to start this morning in Colossians 1. Why do we need to be reconciled to God? These are truths that you've got to understand as a follower of Jesus Christ. Number one, Sin separates us from God. Number two, sin makes us enemies of God. Number three, sin results in disobedience to God. That's why we need to be reconciled. It's because we're sinners, and our sin separates us from God. It makes us God's enemy, and it results in disobedience to God. So let's take each of those individually. First, this, this idea of separation. In the text, it's the idea that we're alienated from God. We're not talking about E.T. We're not talking about Martians in spaceships. When we talk about being alienated, we're talking about being separated. We're talking about what you see in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sin against God and the Lord God comes in the cool of the day to walk with them and talk with them. And rather than running to God, what do they do? They run away from God and they hide from God. They want nothing to do with him the moment sin enters their hearts. They're separated from him. It's what you read in Isaiah chapter 59, verse two. In verse one, the prophet says, the Lord's arm is not too short or too weak to save. He can save. However, Isaiah 59, two, your sin has made a separation between you and the Lord so that he does not see and he does not hear. You have separated yourself from him. We're alienated from God and we need to be reconciled. Next, we're his enemies. In the text, this is the the idea of being hostile in mind. We're hostile in mind towards God. What does it mean to be hostile in mind? This is the feeling a Dallas Cowboy fan feels when he sees the colors maroon and yellow. Whatever that team is called these days, we were just talking about teams being renamed out in the lobby. Whatever the the team's called, the Washington football team. When you see the Washington football team, the Dallas Cowboy fan feels hostility. And you say, "Ah, I hate those guys. Those guys are the worst. I don't like those guys. It's what Big 12 fans right now feel when they see burnt orange or crimson and cream. Right? OU and Texas want to leave the conference, and so the rest of us who are left in the conference, Big 12 teams, we say, just leave. Give us the money. We're not letting you leave without the money, but just leave and get out. There's a hostility there. This hostility, to use a, a non-sports metaphor, this is what a, a person on the political right feels when they see an interview from a politician on the left. And to be honest, it's what a person on the political left feels when they see an interview from a politician on the right. There's hostility there. There's immediately a sense of, yeah, we're not on the same page. I'm here, you're there. There's a separation here. And it's not just a separation, but there's a a tension, a hatred, a hostility. It's the feeling you get when you see a post on social media that you completely disagree with. And with everything in your being, you just want to fire back a response and be snarky and argue and debate and tell somebody how stupid they are. It's that feeling of hostility. That's who we are left to ourselves in our sin separated from God and hostile toward God. We want nothing to do with him left to ourselves. And lastly, sin results in disobedience 
to God. The order of that statement matters. The grammar of that statement matters. It's not that you first disobey and then the result is sin. It's that you are a sinner in your heart and in your mind. And the result of the fact that you are a sinner because of your connection to Adam means that the result, the play out in your life is disobedience. It's refusing to obey God's commands. Listen, that's why we need to be reconciled. That's who we are apart from God's grace. Separated from him, hostile to him, disobedient to him. And until a person understands those truths, they are in no way, shape, or form ready to understand anything about Jesus. You have got to understand the truth about who God is. He's holy. And you've got to understand the truth about how bad our sin is. This is, to get on one small point of application, this is the fatal flaw in an entertainment-driven, attractional model of church that is so popular in the West today. The Bible Belt, the United States of America, the West, we are completely filled with churches that are trying to entertain and attract people with flashy lights and the right kind of song and the right kind of sermon series that focuses on you and your life and how you can improve your life. We do all of these things. And to be fair, if you talk to these churches, what they would say is we want to attract people who have been disillusioned by boring, lame church services We want to attract them into a room where they can hopefully hear about Jesus and become followers of Jesus. And on some level, you say, well, that sounds great. We want people to be followers of Jesus. They want people to be followers of Jesus. It all sounds great. But there's two fatal flaws with this attractional, entertainment-driven model of church. The first is that our culture has changed in the last 10, 25 years and is getting harder and harder to be cool enough for lost people to feel comfortable in your congregation if you preach anything remotely close to a biblical ethic or morality. Pretty soon you're not going to be able to be cool enough to attract non-church people. In fact, you may already be there now. So that's one flaw. Here's the other flaw. The whole model assumes that there are all these people out there, they're just dying to know God and they're just so eager to be in church and the problem is that our churches are so stuffy and stubborn and backward that we're just pushing them away and holding them away. Paul says, the Bible says, in reality, sinful people are separated from God. They are hostile to God, and they are disobedient to God and his commandments. The problem is not the stuffiness of our churches. The problem is the sinfulness of our hearts. And what lost people need now, 100 years ago, or 100 years from now, what lost people need is not to be entertained and attracted like moths being drawn to a flame. They need to hear the truth about who God is. They need to hear the truth about their sin. And they need God to do a sovereign work of grace in their hearts. They need to be reconciled to God. They don't just need to be entertained so, okay, now we got them. But they need to be reconciled to God. Why? 
Well, it's because we're separated from God by our sin. We're hostile to God because of our sin. We are disobedient to God because of our sin, and we need to be reconciled. So how does that happen? How are we reconciled to God? Most basically, we would say this. Jesus died on the cross for sinners. He died on the cross for sinners. Verse 21 and 22. You, you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. There's a transition in verse 22. Now, he has now reconciled. Who is he reconciled? Those who were alienated, those who were hostile, those who were evil. He has reconciled those people in his body of flesh by his death. Reconciliation is grounded, it is built on Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. He died our death that we might be reconciled to God. Paul connects all these things in a beautiful way in a passage in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin. Who, Jesus, knew no sin. He was sinless. He was righteous. Why did he do that? It's so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. The cross is the ground of our reconciliation. Jesus Christ becoming sin for us and dying a sacrificial death so that we, separated, enemies, hostile, disobedient, could be reconciled to the Father. That's the ground of it. And Jesus accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished. But there are two more things that have to happen for you and I to experience reconciliation. And Paul talks about them in Colossians 1. The first is this. Jesus' death on the cross must be proclaimed to sinners. And then secondly, Jesus' death on the cross must be believed by sinners. There's got to be a proclamation of the gospel, and there's got to be a reception, a believing, a trusting in the gospel. Both of those things have to take place in order for you and I to actually be reconciled to God. The cross provides everything that needed to be done. The cross is the ground and the basis. Jesus accomplished our salvation, but the application of that salvation involves the proclamation of the gospel and the believing of the gospel by sinful people. Paul talks about both of these things in this passage. Verse 23, he says, the message of reconciliation has been proclaimed openly in all of creation. You know, we've been talking about Gnosticism in the book of Colossians. The Gnostics had this secret knowledge. You had to be an insider. You had to be elite. You had to be admitted to the club to get this secret knowledge. And Paul says, what a bunch of gobbledygook. We just proclaim it openly. We're not trying to hide anything. 
We're not trying to have some sort of secret speakeasy password that admits you to a club. We're just openly proclaiming the gospel. We're not trying to hide it at all. We're proclaiming it openly, and you heard it proclaimed openly in Colossae. And the result is that you believed. You heard gospel proclamation, and you believed the good news about Jesus Christ. There's a question in front of each of us this morning, and the question is, have you believed the good news? I'm not saying, have you gone to church? I'm not saying, have you read your Bible? I'm not saying, are you trying to be a good person? I'm not saying, do you want your family life to function normally? I'm not saying, do you find social capital in being involved in a church like Emmanuel in Odessa, Texas? I'm saying, have you actually believed the truth about Jesus Christ? Have you believed it? This morning, you've heard it. God is holy, and you're a sinful person, and Jesus died on the cross that you might be reconciled to God. And Paul told the Corinthians, and I think he would tell the Colossians, and I think he would tell you this morning, we implore you, be reconciled to God. Believe the good news about Jesus Christ. If you have never done that, do it today. Do not leave this place unreconciled, separated, hostile, disobedient. Be reconciled to God. Believe the good news of the gospel. You know, if we go back to Mephibosheth and we think about his reconciliation with David, Mephibosheth's life changed in a dramatic way. I mean, he was hiding out in low Debar, laying low. But he is brought to Jerusalem, the capital, the city of David, the city of the king. He is scraping by trying to survive with his family in Lodabar in a barren wasteland. And he is brought to Jerusalem and he is seated at the king's table, at David's table. The Old Testament tells us numerous times he ate at David's table all the rest of the days of his life. He's brought into the family. He's brought back into a relationship. His life was completely changed. So it brings us to a question. What is the result for you and me? What is the result of being reconciled to God? What change takes place in our life? You know, we could go backwards to Colossians 1, verse 12, and we could say, well, one of the changes is that we've been qualified to share in an inheritance kind of like Mephibosheth. Left to ourselves, we don't qualify for the inheritance, but God has qualified us for an inheritance in heaven. We could look at verse 13. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness. We were stuck in that domain of darkness. We couldn't get ourselves out, and God has saved us. He's delivered us from the power of Satan. We could look at verse 14. We have redemption and the forgiveness of sins, two of those word pictures we talked about earlier. We've been bought that Jesus now owns us and our sin has been forgiven, our debt has been erased. All things we could say, what is the result of our reconciliation? Look with me in our passage, 21, 22, and 23. What is the result of being reconciled to God? For starters, believers will continue in the faith. Believers will continue in the faith. You see this in Colossians 1. We saw it in Ephesians chapter 2. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. 
many times in the Bible Belt, we make the mistake of boiling that faith down to a one-time decision or a one-time prayer that doesn't change anything in our lives. But what Paul tells the Colossians is, you will continue believing. You will continue in the faith. Paul said it to the Ephesians like this, you weren't saved by your good works, but you were saved for good works. You will follow, you will believe, you will continue to believe, not just in a decisionistic way as a pray a prayer, repeat after me, but this will be a living, active thing, a growing thing, a continuing thing when you're reconciled to God. You know, Baptists get really uneasy about the question of eternal security. And non-Baptists get really uneasy about the question of eternal security. And sometimes we just talk past each other and we just ignore the Bible in our, our attempts to argue with each other. Here's what the Bible says. When you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you become a believer, your eternity is secure. When a person is genuinely converted to faith in Jesus, they will always be genuinely converted to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus will not lose any of those people that the Father has given to him, that he's reconciled through the cross of Jesus Christ. So we believe in the eternal security of the believer. To look at Colossians 1, we say once you've been qualified for the inheritance, you're qualified. And once you've been transferred from the domain of darkness, you're transferred. And once you've been redeemed, he owns you. And once you've been forgiven, your debt has been erased. And once you've been reconciled, 21, 22, and 23, our passage this morning, that relationship will not come to an end. The Lord Jesus will hold on to his people. The question is, how do we know if that's actually taken place in a person's life? And Paul's answer here is, you continue in the faith. You hold to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You keep believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. The great theologian named J.I. Packer says it like this, the only proof of past conversion is present convertedness. We get that wrong a lot of the time. We say, no, the proof of my present conversion is a decision I made way back there. But that's not the New Testament teaching. The truth that you made a genuine decision back there is that you're still walking, you're still continuing in that decision today. The proof of past conversion is present convertedness. To say it the way Paul says it, we would say in verse 23, you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So that's one of the results. Not only will you believe, but you will continue to believe when you've been reconciled. Secondly, believers will be presented as holy, blameless, and above reproach before God. And again, I think in the Bible Belt, we don't talk about this a whole lot. We like to talk about revivals and how many decisions were made. We like to talk about mission trips and how many people prayed to receive Jesus. And we like to talk because we're very moralistic and we all have Pharisees inside of us. We like to talk about how much we're doing to clean our lives up and to try to be better and to, to try to get our spiritual act together. But I just want you to listen to what Paul says here in verse 22. It says he is reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, those who are alienated, those who are hostile, those who are doing evil deeds. He's reconciled those people in his body of death in order. 
Here's the reason. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Holy, blameless, and above reproach. The gospel is not like teaching your kids how to ride a bike. Okay, when you teach your kids how to ride, the, ride a bike, you get them out there and you take the training wheels off and you kind of go behind them and you say, okay, I'm going to help you a little ways and then I'm going to let go and they fall down and you say, it's okay, it's okay, don't quit, get up, get up, try again and you get them back on the bike and they go a little further and they fall down and you say, it's okay, it's okay, get back up, go again. With the aim being eventually they can do it on their own without you. That's how you teach a kid to ride a bike. It's not what the gospel is. The gospel is not God coming alongside saying, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. I'm going to get you up, I'm going to dust you off. Now you go. You got it. And then you stumble and God says, no, that's okay, that's okay. I'm going to get you up, I'm going to dust you off. Now you go with the idea that eventually you go on your own and you can do it all on your own. That's not the gospel. When a person believes the good news about Jesus Christ and they're reconciled to God, these things become true of them because they're true of Jesus. Holy, blameless, and above reproach. Those things get credited to your account. Even though left to yourself, you're none of those things. And God sends his Holy Spirit to live inside his people. And guess what the Holy Spirit does in people's lives? He makes them holy. That's why he's called the Holy Spirit. Over time, increasingly, people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, they become more holy. They become more blameless. They become more above reproach. God is doing that work in us. We don't do it on our own, but God does it in us. He credits these things to us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, and he makes these things true of us. Look, God's plans for you, if you're a Christian, are way bigger than sneaking you into heaven by the skin of your teeth. It's not like Jesus is saying, look, here's the plan. When Peter goes on break at the gates, you're going to sneak in. I'm going to smuggle you in. Don't say anything. Lay low. That's not the plan for anybody. It's not the plan for any Christian. James says the plan for every Christian is maturity in Christ. Paul's saying here the plan for every Christian is that you actually become what God initially says you are in Jesus. You become holy. You become blameless. You become above reproach. It doesn't ever happen perfectly in this life, but it does happen increasingly in this life for the follower of Jesus Christ. So we're going to be presented holy, blameless, and above reproach. One last thing. What is the result of being reconciled to God? Believers become ministers of reconciliation. Paul talks about this in verse 23. He says, I became a minister of all of these things. He said it to the Corinthians. Not only that Paul the apostle was a minister of reconciliation, but that everyone who's been reconciled is now a minister of the message of reconciliation. You know, when Mephibosheth looked back on his old life, he had quite a story to tell. I was separated. I was estranged. I was technically an enemy of the throne, just scraping by. And David showed kindness to me, and he brought me in. He reconciled me to himself. He had a remarkable story to tell. And if you're a Christian, you don't have to have the kind of testimony where you are laying out in the gutter, strung out on heroin, to have a remarkable story to tell. 
every Christian has a remarkable story to tell, regardless of what your past did or didn't look like. We glamorize those stories sometimes where we say, oh, I was the worst, I was a drug dealer, I was laying in the gutter, I was this, I was that. And those are great stories when God saves a person from those things. But this is what Paul's saying. You know who you used to be? You used to be a person who was separated from God. You used to be a person who was alienated and hostile toward God. It was a, a breakdown in the relationship. You wanted nothing to do with him. You used to be the kind of person who was flagrantly and unrepentantly disobedient to God doing evil deeds. And God in his grace has reconciled you to himself. That's a remarkable story regardless of what your past life did or didn't look like. That is a remarkable story, and it's a story that you ought to tell other people. You ought to tell people about the God who reconciles, the God who reconciled you, who brought you close and made you a friend when you were far away and an enemy. That's what it means to be a minister of the message of reconciliation, and that's what God sends us out to be, ambassadors for Christ, representatives for Christ, ministers of reconciliation.